Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, WBGO's Janice Kirkell takes a look at the real estate market in our area as we head into 2024. So when we're talking about supporting minority home ownership, it's also about creating and preserving equity and opportunity for the rest of the community. WBGO's John Kalish takes a look at a new play in Manhattan that tells the story of a Baltimore man who encouraged Jews to convert to Christianity during the Holocaust. The Gospel According to Chaim is about Chaim Einspruch, a Hasidic Jew who became a Christian before he came to America. I'll chat with NEA jazz master and saxophonist Donald Harrison about his upcoming performance at the town hall. And there's a feeling that permeates buildings like that. You can feel the history when you walk in. Film critic Harlan Jacobson takes a look back at the best movies of 2023. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. It's a tough time to buy a house. A lot of headwinds, especially for those new to the real estate market. WBGO's Janice Kirkell has more. While the outlook is for interest rates to begin to fall next year after a sharp rise over the past few years, as the government moved to stop inflation caused by the pandemic, prospective home buyers have suffered during that time, not just with high mortgage rates, but high home prices. When rates are high, people who locked in low mortgage rates years earlier stay put. That cuts into the supply of available homes and sends prices up. This high rate, high price combination makes home buying hard for prospective buyers, especially those who are trying to buy for the first time. Minority home seekers are hit especially hard. Melanie Walter, the executive director of the New Jersey Housing and Mortgage Finance Agency, which helps people get into affordable housing in a variety of ways, explains what a rise in mortgage rates means to those looking for a house. We've seen basically a 40% increase in home prices in a little over two, two years. And at the same time, we've seen rates more than double. You're now paying double on your mortgage. I mean, that's what a doubling of rates means. A $1,000 mortgage is now a $2,000 mortgage every month. When home buying is difficult, people turn to renting, or they're already renting and stay there. The demand sends rent soaring and means people can't save for a down payment. Owning a home, Walter says, means more than just a place to live. It's a creator of wealth. If your family has not had a history of home ownership, whether that is by virtue of redlining or um, career paths and just general opportunity, if your family has not owned a home before, they are generally going to be uh, about the value of a house poorer than a family that has historically. When home ownership goes wrong and foreclosure results, the effects reach farther than the individual homeowner involved. Walter cites a contagion effect where houses within 200 feet of that house, yes, she says it's that specific, suffer a 2 to 3 percent drop in value. This, she says, is of course more significant in cities such as Newark. Dense urban centers, there's a lot more houses and that means there's a lot more families that are impacted by a foreclosure or vacancy. So when we're talking about supporting minority homeownership, it's not just about the access and the opportunity for that individual. It's also about creating and preserving equity and opportunity for the rest of the community. David Trout is a law professor at Rutgers and director of the Center on Law in Metropolitan Equity there. In May of 2022, he wrote a report examining home ownership in Newark called Who Owns Newark, which highlighted some disturbing trends. Newark 
may actually lead the country among municipalities in the extent of single-family home purchases by institutional investors. Trout's report found that anonymous investors accounted for almost half the sales of one to four unit homes in Newark, generally in black neighborhoods with substandard housing. This represents a massive market shift in which a much larger percentage of the homes that first-time buyers would expect to purchase are being bought up and the price is dictated by institutional investors. The result, of course, is fewer homes available for first-time buyers and a further restricting of home ownership to a narrower segment of the population. He says we need a broader spectrum of homeowners. Without it, not only do we have more wealth inequality, but we have greater housing instability and less for each generation to pass on to the next while a more concentrated few retains wealth that used to be spread more broadly. Walter says the kind of investment communities really need is still lacking. Even if you assume that today there was no issue, and I don't think you can truly assume that, no redlining or no uh, housing discrimination happening today on appraisals or anything else, you still have disinvestment in specific communities and a lack of capital access, which means that individual home buyers who are buying their first home today start in a worse position. She says the government can help out here and is pointing to three programs in New Jersey designed to help people get into homes and prevent them from losing what they've bought. There's a foreclosure intervention program funded by $25 million in American Rescue Plan money, which goes to rehabilitate vacant properties and sell them to first-time home buyers. An emergency rescue program for mortgages to help those in danger of losing a home and a down payment assistance program. But the response from those who might benefit most, she says, is often guarded. Sometimes there's a real distrust of some of these government programs. Something that's been critical, and I think sometimes larger banks fall short on, right? And that's something that we've worked very hard to do, is to do outreach faith-based organizations, community-based organizations, work with the chambers of commerce. You're walking into neighborhoods where sometimes I'm from the government and here to help was the worst possible thing you could hear. Trout says there is a role for the government here that does not depend on a response from the public. We do all kinds of things to rein in and regulate markets on behalf of the public interest. And this is, and this is one of those times when we've seen significant structural changes that require that we do more. Figures from the National Association of Realtors from earlier this year show that while the U.S. home ownership rate rose to 65 percent in 2021, the rate among black Americans lagged significantly at 44 percent. It has risen less than a half percent over the last 10 years and is almost 30 percentage points less than that of white Americans at 72 percent. It's the biggest black-white home ownership rate gap in a decade. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Janice Kirkell. Janice Kirkell's report is part of WBGO's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion series, made possible in part by the Fund for New Jersey. A new play in Manhattan tells the story of a Baltimore man who encouraged Jews to convert to Christianity during the Holocaust. That play was written and is performed in Yiddish, 
because its protagonist was a real-life character who translated the New Testament into Yiddish. WBGO's John Kalish has the story. The Gospel according to Chaim is about Chaim Einspruch, a Hasidic Jew who became a Christian before he came to America and eventually settled in Baltimore. The drama was written by the 33-year-old playwright Michal Yashinsky, who lives in New York and has made a name for himself as a Yiddish actor, teacher, and translator. Yashinsky is well aware that Einspruch never formally converted to Christianity. He was a Christian. He believed in the divinity of Jesus and spread the gospel and was a missionary but also was a very proud Jew culturally. The New Testament, believe it or not, was among the first Yiddish books ever printed when it appeared in the year 1540. Yashinsky says the translation Einspruch did and had printed in 1941 stood out. Other missionaries had translated the New Testament into Yiddish for the purpose of converting Jews, but it was missionary in Yiddish, missionary Yiddish, which is basically a garbled Yiddish, largely German, not at all idiomatic or natural. His innovation was writing this in a truly refined, literary, poetic, idiomatic Yiddish, and it reads beautifully. Und in dem sechsten Chodesh ist der Malach Gavril geschickt geworden von Gott in a Stadt von Golil, There was a reading of Yashinsky's play in March, and a first-time Hasidic actor rehearsed for the role of Einspruch, but was not up to the task, according to Yashinsky, so the playwright decided to take the role for himself. One of the other characters in the play is a young Jewish activist named Sadie, who's trying to alert other Jews in Baltimore to the Nazi genocide unfolding in Europe. Sadie is played by Melissa Weiss, who grew up speaking Yiddish in a Hasidic Brooklyn family. In this play, these two characters come from very different places, but they're both just trying to be like, how do we save people? They're flawed human beings who are just trying to figure out how to help. The third character in the play is a printer named Gabe, who sorely needs the work, but is torn about printing the New Testament. The character of the printer hasn't heard from his mother in Europe since World War II started. At one point, he calls the Yiddish New Testament treif, which is Yiddish for not kosher, and tells Einspruch, take it away. I don't even want to touch it. The story in the play takes place over the course of a year during Hanukkah and Christmas in 1940 and 1941. Einspruch sings Silent Night in Yiddish while he's in the printer's shop. The character of the printer is played by Sruli Rosenberg, who also grew up in Hasidic Brooklyn and is a native Yiddish speaker. Rosenberg had no idea that there was a Yiddish theater scene in New York until a couple of years ago when he attended a Yiddish arts retreat in Germany. I was told that there's there's Yiddish theater in New York, and I'm like, no, there isn't. I would have known of it. Plays? You want to tell me there are actual plays? I couldn't believe it. I was told of Yiddish rap. I was told of the Volksbühne. And I'm like, wait a minute. 
The new Yiddish rep, which is presenting the gospel according to Chaim, has been doing plays since 2007. The National Yiddish Theater Folksbina has been around for more than a century. This play, like most Yiddish theater, is being performed with English supertitles displayed on video monitors so non-Yiddish speakers can follow along. The new Yiddish Rep's artistic director, David Mandelbaum, says this new play is the first full-length Yiddish drama written in America in some 70 years. If Yiddish theater is to really have a life, then one of the things that are essential is people who write Yiddish plays. If the theater is going to have a life, it needs to have young writers who begin producing work, and it has to have a venue which will present that work. Otherwise, why write it? The Gospel According to Chaim runs at the Theater for the New City in Manhattan's East Village through January 7th. It's just a few blocks from an historic Yiddish theater on 2nd Avenue that's now a movie theater. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. As part of the 2024 NYC Winter Jazz Fest, NEA Jazz Master Big Chief Donald Harrison's Omniverse Music is coming to the Town Hall on January 11th with a host of special guests, including Dave Holland and Charles Tolliver. I talked to Donald about the special event in New York City and why his idol Charlie Parker would love what he's doing with his most recent multi-genre recording, The Magic Touch. What is that? magic touch that Donald Harrison has on the saxophone? I think it's uh, an honest diligence towards learning the music. And uh, one of the things I loved about some of the, especially the bebop musicians, is that they they respected the people that they played for. They learned some of what they were doing from the people in the world. So they were a reflection of the people. So I think that... Uh, hanging out with people and going to all different kind of clubs, seeing all kind of different music and just living in the world. It reflects back through what you play on your horn. If you are around people and you have love for them, then I think they can feel that when, when you start to play. First of all, is Town Hall special to you in any way? Of course, so many iconic concerts have taken place there. It's, it's the uh, like the Village Vanguard. It's, these places are historic, and there's a feeling that permeates buildings like that. You can feel the history when you walk in, and to be part of that history is a, a monumentous uh, occurrence in my lifetime. And I'm I'm very grateful to be able to play in that that room. If you come there and hear some music, you'll know what I feel. Tell us what they can expect. No, in the first half it'll be my group, which is a uh, young musicians who are on the quest with me. Uh, I'm passing down information that I got from all the older masters to them. So we'll present some of our nouveau swing music. And then we'll go into a history of jazz so that people can feel uh, what the, all those eras felt like. 
a modern, I guess, uh, version of it, but it's really close to what you hear on the records. And then we're gonna uh, show how all of those experiences and what I've taught these younger musicians uh, inform what, uh, the nouveau swing sound, which has turned into the omniverse sound. <laughs> because uh, I told them when they joined the band, I said, if you don't learn all the errors of jazz, you can't you can't play nouveau swing because nouveau swing is is like you said the bridge, the thing that unites the history of our music and makes it a presentable, beautiful experience that has, for me, some depth to it. When you think of this recording, The Magic Touch, I mean, it's 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 appropriately named in that way. But when you think of all the different ways that you play, is there one that recently has touched you more? I think I think the, uh, the Omniverse Jazz version is the culmination of, of all of those things. You know, uh, I'm working with a, really a genius uh, quantum physicist on a new science and music uh, idea. And uh, we talk about things. And I got to seeing the universe and now I guess the omniverse. One of the scientific principles, if there were multiverses, that if there are multiverses, then they all uh, have the same elements in them. So then I, that, that turned on a light switch for me with music. After playing all these styles, I said, well, all music has the same elements. It has rhythm. It has harmony. Music has a uh, melody. And, it, and it's played from the perspective of the uh, person who's playing the music. So that's when I really started realizing I should do what I, I had been working on my whole life to merge everything. With the Omniverse version, I put all the different styles of music inside of one jazz sound. So you can feel James Brown, you can feel Charlie Parker, you can feel you know, uh, Duke Ellington, you can feel Etta James, All you can feel Eddie Palmieri. They're all uh, immersed inside this style of jazz that we're playing. And with that being said, bird magically shows up to this concert what's he going to think about donald harrison's omniverse well i think he was think i'm a, a modern precursor of his his thought pattern because he's one of the musicians that everything he heard he put inside the music classical music the music from south america you know south of the border tap dancing uh, all his predecessors, you can hear him playing Shoeshine Boy uh, solo from Lester Young, playing like Coleman Hawkins. He was a chameleon. Uh, Miles Davis told me Bird would sound like a different saxophone player every night. He could come on the bandstand and be totally different, have different ideas. So that was that's another key factor. Just knowing that from from the older musicians, I played with uh, Roy Haynes for 15 years. And I grilled him on Charlie Parker. But I, I think he would see someone who took his ideals and did uh, what I was supposed to do with it. You know, when I introduce you as Big Chief, some people know what I'm talking about, but others don't. That was a, a, a title that you earned through various rituals. Can, can you tell listeners who may be not familiar with Big Chief Donald Harrison where that title came from? 
Well, yeah, I had to earn it, as you said. But in New Orleans, uh, they had a special place called Congo Square. And Congo Square was a place where Africans could participate in their homeland culture. And uh, they did it every Sunday. They had a free day to go and uh, be transferred back to what they felt in Africa. So that through that, New Orleans came up with offshoot cultures, you know, Africanized cultures. And, and my father was a chief of five different uh, groups. And now I'm the chief of Congo Square. So I have uh, a place that is very uh, sacred to me in terms of American music. It informed jazz, as Sidney Bechet said, and, and a number of other early jazz musicians. And also, I actually know the key to uh, where the music came from Africa, what they use from Africa in the music, and how to, how to use it. A different paradigm. Donald, you're obviously a, a deep musician, right? You, you put so much thought into your music. Where did that deepness come from? Who's the first one that really instilled something more than just the surface when it comes to either being a musician or a man? Well, I think my parents uh, are the key ingredient for who I am today because I was just telling someone the other day, when I was little, I, I remember going to them, something silly happened. You know, I thought it was the end of the world. And they always told me, everybody's got problems, but who's the person that's going to find your solution? You have to find a solution. So that's one thing. So I've, I've always been a person who's looking for the next idea, the solution, the most logical way to move forward, but through hard work and diligence. And uh, I never thought that I was deep. I just thought that that was my job. <laughs> you know, everybody everybody has a purpose. You know, like we like we were talking about Congo Square, that's tied to antiquity. So I always looked at myself as a missing link. You know, the person that's in the middle of all of this stuff. But that can also go back to antiquity through living it. I was very fortunate to, to uh, be here at a time when a lot of the old timers were alive in the culture and they could teach me various aspects. That's why I started calling it Afro-New Orleans culture. After uh, going to Cuba and Puerto Rico and Brazil and various other places in uh, south of the U.S., and they always say Afro-Cuban, Afro-Puerto Rican, Afro-Brazilian, and I realized that New Orleans is actually Afro-New Orleans music. You can see my entire interview with Big Chief Donald Harrison on the WBGO Facebook page. Our film critic Harlan Jacobson is here to highlight some of the best films of the year. Harlan doesn't count backwards from 10 when it comes to the best, only draws a border around the ones he says are exceptional, unique, maybe thrilling, always engaging, occasionally funny, and worth seeing. There have been more good domestic and foreign films to see this year, than in the recent past. People in the industry are puzzled a bit. Is it just a good vintage year? Or is this a COVID thing, where the disruption of the past couple of years pushed projects back and created a backlog that splash landed this year? Or was it both? Audiences have trickled back this year, except for the torrent of those lined up to see the big deal event films, 
For instance, when the mashup of Barbenheimer dominated the mediascape. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer with Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer pulled back the cinema curtain on the bomb of all bombs. It was actually thrilling to see New York indie filmmaker Greta Gerwig hijack the world with Barbie, using sometime bad girl Margot Robbie as the pink power bombshell. Both films are on my 2023 list. Well, say what you will, because they are big visions filmed without compromise. And if for no other reason, they worked. They brought people back into theaters worldwide. It certainly wasn't just for their mega budgets. A lot of films burn money and die. Was it the undercurrent of what the film said about history, men, or women? Or the desire to be part of the cultural conversation? Or to just sit in a theater with other people and go for a ride? Audiences certainly came out for Taylor Swift and these two big guerrilla films that sent superhero films packing. Looks like this beach was a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beach off with you any day, Ken. Anyone who wants to beach him off has to beach me off first. I will beach both of you off at the same time. Beach both of us off? Nobody's going to beach anyone off. On the domestic, or at least quasi-domestic side, I liked Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos, a Victorian feminist Frankenstein tale with Emma Stone lumbering her way across the sexual revolution to a be a woman in full. American fiction, canceled at his teaching job in L.A. for teaching the wrong short story, Jeffrey Wright revives his sinking career as a novelist by fabricating an identity as a convict author on the lamb with a story to tell. Back in his childhood home outside Boston, he's got unfinished family and personal business, and he just doesn't cotton to the notion that bogus black is the only way to sell a black voice. Cord Jefferson's debut feature isn't afraid to turn the point of view around on the audience while maintaining a sense of fun. Maestro is at least as much about the toll Leonard Bernstein's rise to the top of the New York and world classical musical pyramid took on his wife, Felicia, played by Carrie Mulligan, who, opposite Cooper's Roman Candle, walks a fine, cool line through mid-century American scenes from a marriage. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Oh, she's so beautiful. Tell me about her. Oh, she's wonderful. She's a lovely girl. What age are we living in? One can be as free as one likes without guilt or confession. Please, I know exactly who you are. Whatever the critical carping about Maestro, too nosy here, too gay there, missing this one or that one, in 2023, Cooper's Maestro was an ambitious, gorgeous achievement, period. Alexander Payne's The Holdovers is set in a New England prep school over Christmas about a kid who has nowhere to go over the holidays and gets stuck at school with his Stickler Classics teacher, Paul Giamatti. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. 
but there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? Thank the God of black women for the unlikely third holdover, head cook, Divine Joy Randolph, who might get an Oscar nomination before she'll ever get a James Beard Award. Some of the best imports this year are Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer's fourth film, which premiered in Cannes just after the death of British author Martin Amos, on whose 2014 novel the screenplay was based. The story lulls one into Hannah Arendt's banality of evil territory and the everyday domestic stresses of the Nazi commandant of Auschwitz and his wife and children and living, all living in a pleasant manor house with gardens and a pool just outside the walls of death. They ignore the smokestacks, we don't. In Roger Ross Williams' Cassandro, Gail Garcia Bernal plays a luchador exotico, a gay wrestler dressed en femme in the ring and crossing back and forth between his home in El Paso where he's a dutiful son who takes care of his mother to taunt the macho rabble in Juarez where anything goes in the low-rent pro wrestling ring. Backstage Mexican wrestling has a little of Fellini about it, but Bernal and director Williams have also taken the film's great heart from Pedro Almodovar in feeling the pulse of where we are now. Finally, Perfect Days is another first-rate film by German director Wim Wenders, with the great Koji Yakusho, a favorite going all the way back to Shall We Dance in 1996. Yakusho won Best Actor in Cannes for his portrait of a man who inexplicably has stepped down from great wealth to clean public toilets in Tokyo. True, one doesn't always get to take a one-of-a-kind tour of Tokyo public pissoirs, but Perfect Days is a quietly wonderful film, a masterful film about inner peace and the outer rat race, and Vendors has always been able to catch holy light. So I leave you with this. May 2024 be kind to the world and you and me and all of us in it. And I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.